Chronicles chapter 6. Hello, Robbinsville. Uh, and let me just begin by establishing, maybe you're looking at my face and, and wondering, this guy is like the Elephant Man uh, or something like that. Some of you don't even know what the Elephant Man was uh, from a long time ago. Well, I just had to put that guy in his place. And he got a good one in, but uh, I came back. No, I'm teasing. Unfortunately, I have poison ivy. Uh, and it is increasingly spreading. I woke up, I couldn't open my eye today, and it was too late to call others and say, hey, can you cover? Uh, so you have my permission to look down the entire time <laughs> at your Bible. You do not need to make eye contact or anything like that. Um, it is really, really bad. If you would please have a lot of sympathy on me. I, I'm just kidding. I'm fine. Uh, it just looks funky. And so I, uh, I, I'm sorry for you that you have to stare at me uh, for 40 minutes or so. Well, anyway, uh, today we are in 1 Chronicles chapter 6, as I mentioned to you, uh, and we're going to continue to make our way through this. I'm not sure if we'll be able to finish this whole chapter today or not. There's 81 verses in 1 Chronicles chapter 6. If it's not the largest, it's certainly one of the largest chapters in this particular book. And it's in that section, again, that we've been looking at, the genealogical sections of the book. Now, just as way of reminder to you, Remember, chapters 1 through 3, his purpose was to establish family lines. So it's a lot of that, and so-and-so gave birth to so-and-so, who gave birth to so-and-so, and, and you, know, you follow that particular pattern. And so as a group, we spent some time, and we were looking at these uh, family trees, these genealogical records, taking us from this guy to that particular guy. But when we move to chapter 4 uh, through 7, actually, there's, it changes, and the purpose is not so much to follow a family line anymore as it is to give you the, the names of key leaders, this clan, this clan, this clan, this clan, and so on, and where they live. Now remember, there's 12 tribes of the nation of Israel. And each of those tribes, they were granted a portion of land in the promised land that we're talking about here. And so Ezra now, speaking a thousand years, about 700 years later, as the children of Israel had been taken out of the land, brought to Babylon, and now they're coming back to Babylon. And these are children of the children who used to live there, so they're, they never lived there themselves. He's explaining to them, this is where the Reubenites are going to live. This is where the Gadites. This is where the people of Manasseh, and so on and so forth. And so that wasn't so-and-so gave birth to so-and-so who gave birth to so-and-so. It was just key people of each of those tribes. But now that we come to chapter 6 again, we're kind of going back to the way first, uh, the first three chapters of Chronicles uh, addresses the genealogical issue. And this time, we are going to be looking at uh, the tribe of Levi. It's the third-born son of Jacob. And the Levites would go on to become the priestly tribe. That means all of the priests, whether it be the high priest or just sort of the, the run-of-the-mill priest, if you will, they all are going to come from the tribe of Levi. This chapter, you might divide this chapter up into three sections. The first section is verses 1 through 15. And that is going to be for the purpose of determining who the next high priest should be. 
here we are, we're coming back into the land. Who's going to be the high priest in charge? Not an election system. You know, we're going to have an election in, uh, in a few months here. It's not every four years we pick somebody else. There's a family line that will determine who the high priest will be. That's the purpose of the first 15 verses. The next 30 or so verses, up to about verse 54, that's going to set out to distinguish what will the regular priest do, if we can call them that, and what will the high priest do? What will the differing of their duties be, and what's that going to look like? That's the next section. And then the final section of our particular passage, we'll look at where these people are going to live, which is, again, very similar to chapters 4 through 7 and the purposes of those chapters. So let's begin today by looking at Ezra's attempt to establish the proper priestly line. This begins in verse 1. Now it says, the sons of Levi, and they are Gershon, Kohath, and Merari. And we have a slide here, slide number one, and this looks at Levi has three sons. And those three sons, they're listed up there. If you can't read them again, you can see it in verse one, Gershon, Kohath, and Merari. All of the priestly duties are going to be divided up amongst these three boys and their descendants. Okay, Everything that they have to do will be um, divided up amongst these guys. But the purpose of these first 15 verses is to follow one of these sons. So if you look at verse 2 or slide 2, it goes on and explains, now the sons of Kohath are Amron, Izhar, Hebron, and Uzziel. And so we have now gone from the tribe of Levi and specifically gone to a fellow by the name of Kohath. As you go on to verse 3, and it says, now the children of Amron. And that was his firstborn son. And so we're going to follow that particular line as we move down. Now, verse 3a continues. Now, the sons of Amron are Aaron, Moses, and Miriam. Now, those three names, my goodness. What kind of a dad was this? To be able to give birth to a Moses, an Aaron, and a Miriam, and to raise them up in their family. We don't know much about Amram, do we? Not very few of us know anything about him. Uh, and the scripture doesn't give us much information. But we do know about his legacy. And we do know about his children. And I think the importance of a mom and a dad passing on this faith to them, I have no doubt, and raising these kids up. And so as we continue now, we're going to follow specifically, slide five will show you, we're going to uh, follow specifically Amram, this firstborn son here of, uh, of the previous guy. I forget his name right now. But the sons of, and I'm on Benadryl, by the way, so I'm doing the best I can with uh, the mind that I have. Now, if you look, it goes, now the sons of Aaron are Nadab, Abihu, Eleazar, and Ithamar. Now, when I see the names Aaron, Moses, and Miriam, my natural assumption is we're going to follow Moses. I mean, that's the name everybody knows. That's the, the guy that would be the deliverer of the people of Israel. But where, remember, whereas Moses was selected to be the deliverer, the unique task of being the high priest, the one who ultimately was going to represent the people to God and represent God to the people, that wasn't the responsibility of Moses. That was the responsibility of Aaron. And so we are going to continue to follow, originally from Kohath, we're going to continue to follow this family line down, not through Moses, but we're going to follow it through Aaron. And it's Aaron who is going to go on to become the first high priest of the nation of Israel. Levi was not a high priest. Kohath was not a high priest. Amram was not a high priest. The first one is going to be this fellow by the name of Aaron. We learn this in Exodus chapter 29. Now, you don't have to turn there because we put it up here on the board. But in Exodus chapter 29, it says, Now you shall bring Aaron and his sons to the entrance of the tent of meeting, and you shall wash them in water. 
and then you shall take the garments. Now, the, the two or three chapters prior to Exodus 29, uh, they explain what all of the garments that the priests are going to wear and what the furniture is going to be like in the tabernacle and so on. And so based on that whole explanation of these garments, now you come to chapter 29 and it says, and you're going to take Aaron and you're going to put those garments I just talked about, you're going to put those garments on him and his sons. You're going to wash them. You're going to dedicate them in a sense. And it goes on and says, and put on Aaron the coat and the robe of the ephod and the ephod and the breast piece and gird him with the skillfully woven band of the ephod. And you shall set the turban on his head and put the holy crown on the turban and you shall take the anointing oil and pour it on his head and you shall anoint him, anoint him as the high priest. Then you shall bring his sons and put coats on them and you shall gird Aaron and his sons with sashes and you shall bind caps on them and the priesthood shall be theirs by statute forever. So through Levi, through Kohath, through Amram, we come to Aaron and it is from Aaron's children that the high priesthood will be established. That will be the line of the high priesthood. And then as you get into verse 4, you'll see there the priestly line is followed. So from Aaron to Eleazar, from Eleazar to Phinehas, from Phinehas to Abishua, and so on and so forth. And it makes its way all the way down there. Now, as I read that, you might think, well, what about Nadab? Isn't he the firstborn son of Aaron? Wouldn't you expect that Nadab would be the high priest? And if it's not Nadab, then I guess it would be Abihu. He's the number two. Why do we skip Nadab? Why do we skip Abihu and go over here to Eleazar? Well, the reason why we skip them is found for us in the scriptures. And I think this is important. We're not just making stuff up here. We're going through the scriptures. We're trying to understand why these things are happening. And I think this is one of the exciting aspects of these genealogies that we have here is these little clues that are sort of given to us that if we're diligent and we spend the time to go back in and to look, God can really speak to our hearts through them. And so as we consider why not Nadab, why not Abihu, our studies will bring us back to the book of Leviticus. And we discover the answer to the reason for their absence in Leviticus chapter 10. In Leviticus chapter 10, starting in verse 1, it says, Now Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, each took his censer and they put fire in it and they laid incense on it, and they offered unauthorized fire before the Lord, which, had not, which he had not commanded them. And the fire came out before the Lord, and it consumed them, these two men. And they died before the Lord. Why didn't they go on to be the high priest? Because they're dead. And the reason why they are dead is because, as it says here, they offered something called unauthorized fire. Some of your versions may use the phrase, they offered a strange fire before the Lord. Now, the context of this unauthorizing of fire, and you think, well, that's harsh. What's going on here? Well, let's continue to go on uh, back, and this time let's turn back to the book of Exodus. And in Exodus chapter 30, after a lengthy description of what the tabernacle is going to look like, what the furniture in the tabernacle was, what are the various places that the priests were going to do their responsibility, in Exodus chapter 30, we learn about the altar of incense that is referenced in Leviticus chapter 10. And beginning with the description of how the altar was to be built and so on, starting in verse 7 of Exodus 30, it says, And Aaron shall burn fragrant incense on it. Every morning when he dresses the lamps, he shall burn it. And when Aaron sets up the, inc- uh, and when Aaron sets up the lamps at twilight, he shall burn it. So twice a day, 
It'll be a regular incense offering before the Lord throughout your generations. Now Moses, you say, all right, so I get it. That's the altar of incense. It does mention Aaron's name a lot there. Now you go on to verse 9 of that same passage, and it says, and you shall not offer unauthorized incense on it, a burnt offering or a grain offering, and you shall not pour a drink offering on it. So there was a variety of types of offerings that the priest in the Old Testament would offer. You see some of the names here. You have the incense offering, the burnt offering, the drink offering. There was something called the wave offering that's not listed here. There was a variety of methods of offering things in the Old Testament. This altar, which is right outside the Holy of Holies, was specifically for the incense offering. Now, Nadab and it was with a specific fire and so on from a particular censer. The storyline that you have here, and we don't absolutely know what was, what was it that they did wrong, but the storyline that you have here is that Nadab and Abihu, in the midst of this practice that Dad was doing, and if you read a couple chapters back in the book of Exodus, he had just received from the Lord, the fire of God had just fallen down and sort of filled the Holy of Holies, and it was from there that the high priest took that fire, the fire of God, if you will, and they brought it to this altar of incense there, and then all of a sudden, Nadab and Abihu come running out with their different censers. Now, they, are they high priests yet? We don't know. We know that they're in the line of the high priest, but we don't know if it's you know, just reserved for Aaron at this particular point in time or if these guys can do the duty as well. But nonetheless, they come to this scene. They take some of their own fire, if you will, a strange fire, and they begin to offer that up. And there's an immediately condemnation. there's an immediate condemnation for that and they're both struck down dead here. Some other historians or Bible commentators have suggested that perhaps they came and they were a bit drunk. And there's a reason for that. When you look at some of the chapters earlier, it talks about that they are supposed to sort of um, almost like take a Nazarite vow when they're to perform this. And, and Moses will say something like, this is what the Lord spoke unto us, which the last time we hear the Lord speak a couple chapters earlier speaks of that. So maybe that is the reason why that they came here. Uh, maybe the reason why that they are offering this and they're judged for it is because they wanted to be a part of the show. Dad's getting all the accolades. Everybody's looking up at Dad. We're high priests too. Let's go put our outfits on. Let's go run up there. Again, we don't know necessarily, but we do know that they, all, they offered an unauthorized fire, and there was a harsh condemnation for that. Now, as we consider the history of the Scriptures, we see that at the point of beginning many times, God deals pretty strictly with things like this, these unauthorized fires. So we see just following the days of Pentecost, where the church is just beginning to grow, people are having needs, people have traveled to Jerusalem for all, from all around Israel and maybe beyond that, and the Lord poured out His Spirit, and you have many of these converts between that period of Passover, when Christ was offered, and Pentecost, that 50 days later. There's all these people that are milling about uh, the area of Jerusalem. And now, all of these people have come, many of these people, 3,000 it says, had come to faith. And they're hanging around, they're sticking around, they're running out of traveler's checks and vacation money, and they're like, what are we going to do? And people began to sell their goods, and they began to provide for the needs of one another. And we read this particular story in, I believe it's Acts chapter 5, where Ananias and Sapphira, these two believers, followers of God, they decide... Let's sell our property, or one of our properties. Apparently they had a couple of different areas of land. Let's sell one of our properties, and let's bring it. Now, we see the motivation behind it wasn't necessarily to help other people, but that their motivation behind it was because they lie. And they say, look, this is everything we've ever owned, but we want to give it to God because we love God. 
And everyone is going to look at them and say, wow, remarkable people. You guys are the greatest. Would you come and join our board or something like that? And the Lord, and speaking through Peter, says, why is it that you have lied to the Holy Spirit? And they're struck down dead there. Harsh. But they came with these hypocritical hearts. If you will, they came with a strange fire. And because of that, they were struck down. Now here's some valuable lessons for us here as we consider Nadab and Abihu. Nadab and Abihu are sons of Aaron. Their uncle is a fellow by the name of Moses. In Exodus chapter 24, you heard of him. In Exodus chapter 24, we learn that Nadab and Abihu had the special privilege of going with Moses, Aaron, and the 70 elders of Israel up on the mount to receive from the Lord. I mean, these guys were in the thick of things. And yet something was going on within their hearts that the holiness of God was something that their hearts was not, were not reverencing any longer. And they thought they were people that could just kind of go through the motions. They thought they were people that could do it the way they wanted. They thought they were people that could slide by. And whatever we decided to do, that God was going to have to be good with that. And God established, no, no, I will be honored. Again, remember Moses' words there uh, that we read. Did I read them to you here? I forget where it was. But Moses says, this is what the Lord, Leviticus 10, this is what the Lord has said. Among those who are near me, I will be sanctified. And before all the people, I will be glorified. And so these fellows are struck down dead. Now, as I mentioned, they grew up with Aaron. They grew up with Moses. They've been up on the mountain with the Lord himself. And I can't help but think of children that have grown up within the church, whether it be this church or another church. Now, this particular Calvary Chapel here at the Ewing campus, 15 years we've been around, 15, 16 years. The Robbinsville campus, two years now. So if you take young people, uh, like many of us, we were young. We were 25, 26 years old when this fellowship began, and we began to have kids in this church, people like Rachel, uh, and so on. And though some of our children, they have been in this church every Sunday for every day of their lives. And something happens, though. I'm not saying Rachel. She's a wonderful young lady. But something happens to a people that are around something every day of their life. You see, when I came to Christ, I know where I came from. I was lost, and I could see the, the signpost leading me on my way to hell. And God got a hold, of my, a hold of my heart, and he changed me. And he made me a new person. I know where I've come from, and I know where I'm headed. But for many of our young people that grow up in the faith, they don't necessarily know where mom and dad came from. They just know mom and dad, they're nice people, they like church, all that sort of stuff. They, they, they run a nice home here, and they take good care of us, and so on and so forth. And the magnitude of the, the darkness or the depths of the darkness that they came from may not be magnified in the lives of those children. And oftentimes you will see the second generation or the third generation Christian, if you will. Remember, it says God has no grandchildren or great-grandchildren. He only has children. But oftentimes that second and that third generation, there's not as much passion. There's not as much fervor. There's not as much sincerity of heart. The reason why I seek to live a life that is set apart is because I understand the holiness of God. That's what the word set apart means. And I don't want to be in sin. But sometimes our people like Nadab and Abihu, they may not uh, know that as well. And so what I, the reason I bring this up, I would encourage second generation believers here in the church, I'd encourage you for yourself, discover who God is. For yourself, discover his holiness and how different he is from you. And set yourself apart unto him. Now, whether or not they came as drunks, whether or not they came as show-offs and they wanted the glory for themselves, whatever it may be, the reason they came, we know 
that they offered this unauthorized fire. So I think the point is that God has prescribed a way in which we are to come unto Him and to worship Him. In the New Testament, we know without a doubt that that is through the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. You remember when the disciples came to Him and He said, look, I'm going away for a little while. I'm going away and where I am, you cannot also come with me. And so on. Lord, where are you going? We don't know where you're going. How are we going to know the way? And Jesus responds, He says, I am the way and I'm the truth and I am the life. You've heard the verse, I know. Many of you, you've dedicated your life to it. I want to go to heaven I want to be washed. I want to be cleansed. And the only way to get to heaven is through the person of Christ. You're committed to that. But how many in our society and how many in our culture, they come to God, through, or they think they do, through a completely different method? How many of them are saying things like, well, you know what? It's time for me. I'm going to be a better person. You know, I've, kind of, I've been a bad person in the past, but I'm going to be a better person. And God will honor that. Well, we know from the Scriptures, such a, a theory, if you will, would be called an unauthorized fire. How many people have you talked to? And they said, you know what, well, look, you believe what you believe, and that's great. But I think God honors my sincerity. God looks at how sincere I am, and he knows that so on and so forth, and so he'll accept that. Well, as we know from experience, a person can be sincerely wrong and miss it. And so a person who comes in their sincerity, but not through the person of Christ, the Bible would call that an unauthorized fire. How many people say, yeah, I'm just going to follow my heart and see where that leads me and where that takes me? And again, we know from the Scriptures, the, the uh, prophet Jeremiah would, would speak about our hearts as being desperately wicked and deceitful. Who can even know our own hearts? That's how deceitful that they can be. And we know that a person that will say, I'll just follow my heart, their heart can lead them astray. And the Bible would say that offering to God is an unauthorized, strange fire. Isaiah chapter 64 said, anybody that seeks to come to the Lord with their own sacrifice or whatever, he calls those righteous deeds filthy rags. And I know I've said this in the past, but I'll say it again to make the point. The word that he is using there is used menstrual cloths. That's the offering that we bring to God hoping that he'll accept. Would you? If somebody brought that as a gift to you, would you accept that? No. And so when we come to the Lord outside of the way that he has prescribed, the man Christ Jesus, really we're bringing these uh, filthy rags to him and saying, please accept this. And we know from the scripture that he won't. Now, I know many of you in this room, you agree with that. I want to encourage you because sometimes I wonder, do I really think that way as far as my friends are concerned? And do I really think that way as far as my lost uh, loved ones are concerned? Do I really believe that a good life, or do I really not believe that a person living a good life or trying harder or being sincere, that they're still going to fall short of the glory of God and be found guilty of their sin and spend an eternity outside of him. If I really believe it, then I should be a little more motivated to share my faith and see people come to an understanding of who Christ is and what he can do. Well, as we continue on in chapter 6, notice immediately following Aaron, we skipped over Nadab and Abihu, and starting in verse 4, it says, Now Eleazar fathered Phinehas, and Phinehas fathered Abishua, and Abishua fathered Buki, and so on. And it goes through and it lists all these names up until verse 15. Notice in verse 10, you take a little bit of a break there when it talks about a guy by the name of Azariah. In that list, there's a number of guys named Azariah. There's a number of fellows named Zadok, and Amariah, and so on. Amaziah, I believe it is. And so here, you're given a point of clarification in verse 10, and it said, it was this Azariah who served as a priest in the house that Solomon built 
uh, in Jerusalem. And that's speaking of the temple. And we know that the temple was built somewhere around the year 1000 B.C., so that gives us a time frame for what what we're speaking of. Then we continue and we go on to verses 14 and 15. And in verse 15 it says, And Jehozadak, he went into exile when the Lord sent Judah um, and Jerusalem into exile by the hand of Nebuchadnezzar. Now Nebuchadnezzar was the king of Babylon. You probably know his name. We read about him in the book of Daniel, a book we've studied uh, here on Sunday mornings in the past. And so Nebuchadnezzar as the king or the emperor of Babylon it was in 586 B.C. that he makes his way, or his soldiers, whatever, make their way into Jerusalem, and they take captive the people and bring them back over to Babylon. Jehozadak, the high priest, is one of those people that is led off into Babylon. Now, he, the purpose of Ezra, remember that, I think it, it makes sense of these things here, is he's trying to establish, here we are now, our families, are the, the Israelites, they've been out of the country for 100 years, 70 years actually, out of the country. Now they're coming back. Jehozadak, the high priest, is dead. So now we have a vacancy. Who will be the next high priest? Again, you can't just have an election. You can't have, you know, please submit your resumes. We'll come up with who we think is best. You have to follow the prescribed manner. You saw what happened to Nadab and Abihu for not uh, following the prescribed manner. And so who is going to be the next high priest? This is the purpose of Ezra. The clue or our answer we can find, it's not listed here for us, but it's found in the book of Zechariah. And the book of Zechariah is, a, is an awesome book, speaks of uh, the return of the Lord and all that, while at the same time speaking of the return of the Israelites to the land following the captivity. But in chapter 3 of Zechariah, it says, speaking to Zechariah, it says, and then the angel that is given this revelation to Zechariah showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord. And she's like, okay, so Joshua is going to be the high priest. But who is he? And you look at chapter 6, and it said in the context of the whole passage, it says, take from them silver and gold, make a crown, and set it on the head of Joshua, the son of Jehoshadak, the high priest. And so there's the connection back to 1 Chronicles chapter 6. So when the children of Israel are returning from the land of Babylon, this man by the name of Joshua is the high priest. And if anyone would say, well, what gives him the right to be the high priest, you can turn to First Chronicles chapter 6 and say, well, here's the genealogy. And it goes all the way back to Aaron. And that's why Joshua is the high priest of this particular family. And so he's carefully pointing out the rightful line. We do have a slide. It's a slide 14. I know you can't read it necessarily from where you're sitting in your seats, but this is the straight through, one after the other after the other. There's 23 names that are listed from Aaron on down to this fellow by the name of Jehozadak. And we would add the name Joshua as well. Now, we go on to verse 16, which is the second section of this particular chapter. And the purpose, again, of chapter 16 is to establish what will the average priest do, the Levites, if you will, compared with what the high priest is going to do. What would their responsibilities be? Now, we begin verse 16 the same way we began verse 1. And it says, now, these are the sons of Levi. Levi gave birth to Gershon. He gave birth to Kohath. And he gave birth to a fellow by the name of Merari. They are his three sons. Interesting, each one of those sons and their children, each one of those clans, if you will, and their children were given specific tasks. So the Gershonites had a responsibility, the Kohathites did, and so did the Merarites. The Gershonites, their particular responsibility was to carry the tent. Now please remember, the temple was not yet built. 
when we're talking about the days here of Levi and their sons. They had a place to worship. It was called the tabernacle. Moses led the children of Israel out of Egypt and they began to wander through the desert. A little interactive. How long did they wander? They wandered for 40 years through the desert. And each week or so, whatever it may be, they came to a place and they set up shop. And the shop that they set up, among other things, was a temple, if you will, a temporary temple or a tabernacle or a tent. And it was very much like the actual temple that would be built, except it would be with portable material, temporary material. And so the Gershonites, their responsibility, when Moses said it's time to move, the Gershonites' responsibility was to fold up the canopy, if you will. Fold it all up and carry that. And I'm sure they did it in a prescribed way that um, reverenced the area and so on. The Kohathites, their job was to carry the furniture of the tabernacle, the altar of incense, the table of showbread, uh, and so on. And the Murarites, their job was to carry the boards of the tabernacle, or those things that gave it structure, as well as the fencing, if that, sort of like a fencing that they created that would surround this whole holy area of the tabernacle. Each one of the family lines had a particular responsibility. And as I read that, I can't help but think of the New Testament, where the Apostle Paul speaks of the church. And the Apostle Paul likens the church to a body. And there, in places like 1 Corinthians and places like Ephesians, he begins to speak of how every part of the body of Christ contributes a different aspect to things. Now, some of us, we all want to be the mouth. Some of us, we all want to be the eye. All of us, some of us, we want to be the ear. We want to be some important part or whatever in that process. Well, the danger with that is, is when the puffy eye, as mine is, begins to look to the ear and say, you know, you're not as important as I am. Or when we look at the pinky toe and you say, eh, you're not that important. We could cut you off and no one would even care. When, and Paul is pr- trying to say, is no, all parts are important and significant and contributing to the growth. What's the purpose of our church? What's the purpose of this church? I believe that we come on a Sunday morning and we share life together as a body of believers that have voluntarily joined ourselves together is so that we might know the Lord better and we may discover in ourselves those things that are keeping us from knowing him better. And we partner in life together one by one because we want to seek to live a life that would glorify the Lord. The more we know him, the more we're going to want to glorify him. The closer we get to him, the more that's going to reveal in our lives that don't match up. And so we partner in life together to say, come on, spur us on. Let's live this life together as we seek to follow the Lord. Here's the thing. Sometimes we think that the, it's the pastor's responsibility that we would all grow and move forward and closer to God. And certainly the pastor has a responsibility in that. Sometimes we think it might be the elders or the worship leaders or the Sunday school teachers or somebody else's responsibility. Certainly it's not my job as a person who comes and sits on a Sunday morning and listen, uh, listens. I wouldn't agree with that statement. What I would suggest to you is that all of us have been placed within this body, certainly within the body, capital B, capital C, the body of Christ, the church, capital C. But within this particular body that many of us have determined, this is my church. Some are visiting today, certainly. Some are still visiting, you know, for the first time, trying to figure out, is this where I'm going to settle in? But for those of us that said, this is my church, and this is where I'm going to go, then I would ask for you, to you, what is your place within this body? What would God have for you to do to contribute to the growth of other people that are sitting beside you? And how will we move forward as a body of believers, growing and understanding who God is and what God would have for our lives? In the tabernacle time here, you see that all of this, this family, the Gershonites, the Kohathites, the Merorites, 
all working together for the advancement, if you will, of the body of believers. And it's the same thing that we see in the church as well. Now, as we continue on to verse 31, notice what it reads. It says, Now these are the men whom David put in charge of the service of the song in the house of the Lord after the ark had rested there. And so David selects song leaders. I think you and I, we would be more familiar with by calling them worship leaders. These were selected by David. Interesting because David, though he was the king, David was a worshiper. David was a man who the scripture said had a heart after God. Many of the Psalms that we read, we have insight into the heart of David and how he loved the Lord. And as the the scripture says, he was a man after God's own heart. And here in this particular section, Ezra now points out the men and their families following them who were called to be, selected to be, the song leaders. I think this is important. Look at, here's their names. Look at verse 33. The first one, these are the men who served, and the context is as song leaders, and their sons of the sons of the Kohathites, He-Man, the master of the universe. I'm just kidding. Some of you younger have no idea what I'm referring to, but the rest of you know, and that's our little joke, and don't tell the young people. But anyway, you have He-Man, and it says he is the singer, uh, the singer, the son of Joel. He's one of the worship leaders. You go down to verse 39, and there in verse 39, it speaks of a fellow by the name of Asaph. And there it says he stood on the right hand, namely Asaph, the son of Berechiah. He was the second of the worship leaders. And then if you look down to verse 44 of our passage, it speaks of the sons of Merari, and it introduces us to a fellow by the name of Ethan, the third of the worship leaders. So these three men, and then their children after them, they served as the worship leaders. Selected by a worshiper themselves, David, and they would be the worship leaders. Now, I think it's important that we understand how do people get to be a worship leader? Here at Calvary, I, I, I can sing, I can play guitar, I can play piano. How do I get to get up on stage there? I think it's very important that you understand that we are very careful about who we put up here. There are people that perhaps might be in the congregation, we don't know very well, maybe that's the situation yet. But there may be people that have, and people have actually approached us. They never come on a Sunday morning, but they approached us and they said, we'd like to be your worship leader. So we say to them, great, come hang out with us for a year. We don't have a calendar, but come hang out with us for a little while. Let us get to know you. Let us get to know your heart. Because the number one qualification of one of our worship leaders, whether it be this guy or that guy over there or, or whatever, that is up here is that they have a heart that is after God. What we would never want, and sometimes it may happen, and I've seen it happen in other places and and perhaps here. But what we would never want is a person that is living one life over here, but then they come out here with a big smile and they tell you how wonderful God is. Our desire is that the person that is behind the the guitar or the piano or whatever it may be is a person that is hungry for the Lord themselves. I love the way that Josh Barber, one of our worship leaders, says it. He says, you can never lead anyone to a place that you yourself haven't gone. And that's the idea. Hopefully they have some musical ability to carry a tune so the rest of us can join in with them or something like that. I would never be a good worship leader. I believe I have a heart after God. I sing all the time at home and the family runs you know, to other rooms or whatever, but it would be wrong for me to put myself here to sing to you because that would just be bad. All right? And you would not enjoy that day of worship here. But we want people whose heart is right before the Lord. We'll look at the musical, excuse me, the musical ability Uh, afterwards. We want a fellowship and intimacy with God that flows from that particular person. 
We want that person. We pray it all the time when the, the, prayer, the worship team gathers um, just before the services. We pray that we would be a clean conduit, that the Holy Spirit could just flow through us unhindered by our junk and flow through us and touch the lives of the people because what is their job? They're ushering us into the presence of the creator of the universe. You remember Satan was a worship leader back when he was known as the angel Lucifer and pride filled his heart and led him and, and so many other people astray. So it is a high calling to be a person that leads others into worship. Now we're introduced to Asaph, He-Man, and Ethan. And we learn some things about their heart as we read the Psalms. Now many of the Psalms, most of the Psalms, were written by King David or in, in years before he became king. But there's a handful of Psalms that are written by other men. Asaph is a man who wrote a number of those other Psalms. We know that he wrote Psalm 50. We also know that Psalm 73 to Psalm 83 was written by Asaph. So if you wanted to get an idea of the heart of Asaph, I'd encourage you, read those particular uh, Psalms in your scripture. Uh, He-Man, his name is listed as being the author of Psalm 88. Ethan is listed as the author of Psalm 89. So again, you can look at all of those Psalms and get an idea of what is going on in these guys because the song is coming forth from their hearts. This relationship with God is real to them. I love when our worship leaders, they come, and, and some of them do this more so than others, but they come and they said, hey, I wrote a little song. I wrote a chorus that the Lord has put on my heart. And some of those, you may not even know that we're singing them, but some of them were written by these guys as, uh, that lead our worship team here. What I also appreciate is when some of them say, hey, look, here's a worship song that is playing on the radio, uh, Star 99 or something, and I just love it. And the Lord speaks to my heart through it. And they come and they introduce that to us as a congregation. That's a song that is bubbling forth out of the overflow. And that is just so very, very valuable. I don't know about you, but I was in a church for a while where uh, the worship was very dry. The worship was very stale. And, and quite frankly, I couldn't wait till worship was over. Worship, quote unquote, because I wasn't worshiping. Uh, I couldn't wait till it was over so that I could, you know, listen to the teaching of the word or something because there was just no life in it. That's not something that I experienced here with the guys and, and the gals that the Lord has blessed us with, that we can enter into his presence. And this can go from a community room where they play bingo on Thursday afternoons, and it can be the sanctuary of God on a Sunday morning. Or it can go, uh, for the people in Robbinsville, from a crazy middle school uh, cafetorium, and it can become the sanctuary of God on a Sunday morning. So much of that is because of our worship leaders. And I would encourage you, thank a worship leader. And, and I try to as often as possible to let them know how grateful and how appreciative I am for them. Well, that's the second section of our particular passage, going to distinguish the roles of the priest from uh, the high priest. And then the final section of our passage, it has to do with where are these people going to live? So they're coming back from Babylon as well. Where are we going to go? You told me where, and we have a slide here, you told me where the Reubenites are going to live. You told me where the Manassites are going to go. You said where Simeon is going to go and Judah and Gad and so on. Where are we going to go? What is our allotment of land? And Ezra, and we're not going to really get into this today, but Ezra will, and we'll do it next time, Ezra's going to point out, you guys don't get a carve out of land because the instructions that were given to us, which we're going to follow, is that you guys will be dispersed throughout all of the land of Israel. And so... Uh, the place that we read about it is Joshua chapter 20. Uh, and we also read about it in the book of Numbers. I believe it is Numbers chapter 35. It said that the Levites do not get an allotment of land 
but there's going to be 48 cities within the midst of all the other tribes, you know, five in this tribe, seven in that tribe, whatever it may be, but there'll be 48 cities that will be given over to the Levites. And I love this, and I appreciate this so much, because what that means is this. It doesn't matter where I end up living in the nation of Israel, whatever tribe that I happen to be from, in close proximity to me somewhere is a Levite. Now, we have another slide. Did we put that other slide of the Levitical cities up? Some, you see all those black dots that are scattered around in this particular map? Somewhere within proximity to where I live, I can go to one of the priests. And again, remember, the priests represented access to God in the Old Testament. It is the heart of God that he be near to his children. And so there's always that place of access. We'll also talk about this six specific places that are called the cities of refuge. I'll talk about them the next time we're together, but you can begin to do some reading on the cities of refuge because they're fascinating. And they're such an incredible picture of our Lord Jesus Christ. But let me go back to this idea of the 48 cities, actually 42 cities uh, that are in, scattered throughout the nation of Israel. In Genesis chapter 49, we looked at Genesis 49 the last time we were together. This is where uh, Jacob is on his deathbed and he begins to call his 12 sons to come and visit him. And he lays his hands on them and he speaks a prophecy over their lives. He sort of says, this is who you are. Your name is Judah and this is the type of person you are. But this is what your tribe will become. And he does that for each one of his children. We saw that when he spoke to Reuben, he sort of pronounced a curse upon Reuben taking away the, first, the right of the firstborn from Reuben because of some of the actions that Reuben was involved in previously. And then when he comes to Simeon and Levi, he speaks, if you will, a curse against them as well. Because Simeon and Levi, the story is, that you may be familiar with, they were the two who brought vengeance on the neighboring nations who abused their sister, raped their sister. And so they basically said, look, everything is fine. Let's make a, a covenant with one another. And so the people said, great, we thought you were going to kill us. Oh, no. Let's make a covenant. And so they're like, fine, what do we got to do? Well, all of your men need to be circumcised. And then we can go ahead. We're not allowed to make a covenant with anyone that's not circumcised. And so the people said, all right, fine. And all the men, I don't know, fine, but all right, we'll do it. So all the men then were circumcised in this. And it says on the third day, as they were, you know, in their hospital beds recovering uh, from this circumcision, the Simeonites and the Levites came in and they killed all of those men in vengeance for what had occurred earlier. And Jacob is like, what are you doing? You can't like, lie to them and say this and then do that. Are you crazy? They're going to come after us. And their response is, would you have them abuse our sister then? You know, and it's a sort of this family argument that goes on there. And now here is Jacob and he is pronouncing over them this blessing, if you will, this curse. And the curse specifically on Levi is that they would not get an allotment of land but rather that they would be scattered throughout the nation of Israel. Now that is fascinating to me. Because, you know, New Testament, whatsoever a man soweth, that will he also reap. That there are consequences to our actions there. You know, so we can come to God and say, I'm so, so sorry, I'm so, so sorry, I wish I didn't do that. But if we're pregnant, we're pregnant. You know, and the consequences are there. If we committed a crime and the police called us, we may have to go to jail no matter how sorry we are for that particular crime. Um, it is. So we reap what we sow. But here you see how God can bring good even from evil. I value that so much. Because here Simeon, or excuse me, Levi is receiving a judgment, but even in that judgment, other people are greatly blessed. And now all the tribes of Israel have access to God through the, the Levites. And God is using them 
even in the midst of some pain. And I appreciate that because, you know, there's some dumb things that I've done in my life. And there's probably a lot of dumb things that you guys have done in your lives as well. And it is good to know that God can redeem that. If you will, He can buy that back from the scrap heap and He can make some sense of that. And He can use that to help another person along in their walk with Christ. I appreciate that so much. I'm, I'm very much looking forward to this evening. Kevin Barber is going to share his testimony at our Sunday evening study. And as he does, what you're going to see, Kevin is going to share some of the mistakes that he made in his life, but how God had used all those circumstances and pushed Kevin. Kevin's one of, remember our missionary to Belize that we prayed for not too long ago? So it's going to be an exciting time, and it'll be an opportunity for us to learn the lesson of what God can do sort of with the broken pieces of glass to make this beautiful vessel that shines for him. Well, we'll look at the rest of chapter 6 the next time we come together. My wife said, you're never going to get through chapter 6. This is two studies. And I said, oh dear, you have no faith. And yet she has great wisdom because I came nowhere near getting through these two chapters and it's just too much good stuff in there for us to miss it. Let's go before the Lord. Let's pray.